Hello and welcome to the Technicast, a podcast showcasing research from across the arts and humanities. I'm Edwin Gilson. In this episode, we're continuing the theme we started before Christmas, archives, and we're joined by Rudy Lowe, a researcher and art practitioner at University Arts London. I won't introduce their research now, as they'll do that themselves in a few seconds, but I'll be back for a conversation with Rudy after their presentation. In the meantime, here's Rudy. Hi, I'm Rudy Lowe, a visual artist and practice-based researcher at the University of the Arts London. My PhD research examines Britain's role in suppressing black power organising in the English-speaking Caribbean during 1969 to 1974. Recently declassified records from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the FCO, are used as source material for painting and drawing. I'm creating my own visual language to highlight how Britain was driven in its efforts to ensure that self-governance in the Caribbean involved no semblance of black power other than as a sanitised neoliberal imagining. The FCO records offer concrete examples of strategies such as surveillance and propaganda that were employed by the British government to eradicate any potential for radical change that black power might have in the Caribbean. These documents, which are held by and at the National Archives, began undergoing declassification in 2019. In my work, I highlight the state as an unreliable narrator of its own history. The dominant narrative of Britain's withdrawal from the Caribbean is at odds with what these records reveal. I wonder what templates were created, in what ways the Caribbean has been a testing ground for both British and US government operations suppressing black resistance movements. There are reverberations between how Britain has responded to contemporary resistance like Black Lives Matter UK and Caribbean black power movements. It is vital that we can identify and expose the continued techniques harnessed by the British government that render black embodiment an impossibility. The use of embodiment here is framed by a context of black, queer and trans scholarship. Kara Keeling refers to the modes of embodiment existing outside of systems of property, ownership, dispossession, white supremacy and misogyny. This study is also rooted in what Eric A. Stanley and Nat Smith describe as self-determination as a theoretical and embodied practice. And it refers to the ways that C. Riley Snorton creates space to see transness as a movement with no clear origin and no point of arrival, and blackness as a signifier of an enveloping environment and condition of possibility. These practices return us to the body as an act of self-determination. Addressing the injustices handed to black people in the Caribbean by continued colonial systems, both obscured and in plain sight, is at the centre of this research. The dates of this study, 1969 to 1974, are a cross-section of a wider history that exposes Britain's drive to hold power and influence in nations achieving independence from empire, Despite the dominant narrative of the withdrawal process in the Caribbean leading in some cases to independence, it is apparent that the parameters of freedom were conditional. As Louis Lindsay writes, 
No sooner was the right to independence conceded in form than it was withdrawn in substance. Britain extended its influence to suppress black power, thus deciding which forms of freedom were acceptable and which were not. Undeniably, the political landscapes and trajectories of Caribbean black resistance have been altered by Britain's involvement at this time. Renata Walcott argues that when black people assert what freedom might mean and look like, those desires and acts towards freedom have been violently interdicted. The significance of the FCO records is in the interdictions that rendered full autonomy for black people in the Caribbean an impossibility. For over three decades, the Information Research Department, otherwise known as the IRD, operated within the Foreign and Commonwealth Office as Britain's secret propaganda unit, destabilising Cold War enemies and reinforcing anti-communist ideas. As black power gained traction in the late 1960s, the remit of the IRD expanded to include this new perceived threat. My recent exhibition, Unattributable Briefs, Act One, draws its name from IRD documents held at the National Archives. Unattributable is defined as not able to be ascribed or credited to a source. Act 1 alludes to the ways that government secrecy creates an environment without culpability to the point that decision makers come to think that the situation resembles a game. The exhibition at Staffordshire Street Gallery in Peckham, which took place in November 2022, envisaged key moments in the history of black power in Bermuda and Trinidad and Tobago during 1969-71 to 71, through large-scale paintings. These two nations hold distinctly different proximities to Britain. Trinidad and Tobago achieved independence in 1962, whereas Bermuda continues to be a British overseas territory to this day. One painting in the exhibition, February 1970, Trinidad No. 1, shows masquerade or mass figures such as Moko Jimbi moving towards the then Trinidad and Tobago Prime Minister, Eric Williams. Behind the figures are a small group of adults waiting for something to happen and copies of the black radical newspaper Moko fall from the sky. Children whose faces are obscured and semi-hidden are running through the background as message bearers. And this is in direct opposition to the British officials and their collaborators who use concealment as a tactic to hold power. The painting references several IRD records, including a report outlining events leading up to and a part of the February Revolution in Trinidad in 1970. In this file, a British official states that signs of black power influence were visible during the carnival preparations early in 1970. In the painting, the mass figures create a barrier between Prime Minister Eric Williams and the people behind them. Williams is to the right, addressing the crowd and attempting to appease them with a neoliberal imagining of a cultural black power devoid of its political underpinnings. Mokojimbi, mass figures walking on stilts, embody the spirit of fate and retribution. In the painting, they are faceless and intentionally gender ambiguous, creating uncertainty as to whether they are human or spirit, coming to the aid of the people at this moment of reckoning. The Trinidad painting series functions like comic panels with their shape and wide angle perspective. 
in the gallery, the paintings were installed one above the other, inviting the viewer to read them together as you would a comic, transposing the wall of the gallery into a giant graphic novel. The Trinidad series have brightly coloured wooden frames inspired by Caribbean street vendor carts. The carts, which I first experienced in Jamaica, are colourful, often made from recycled wood and finished with hand-painted lettering. March to Coroni, which is the second in the Trinidad series, includes hand-painted text on the side of the frame that reads, Marching to Coroni from Port of Spain in solidarity with Asian sugar workers. The frame functions as a narrating device, bringing in my own voice. It refers to the 12-kilometre march made in 1970 by black Trinidadians in support of Asian Trinidadian sugar workers. Ironically, the leader of the opposition, Bahadasi Mirage, attacked the march as an infringement of the sugar workers' right to earn their living peacefully and urged them to defend themselves. Divide and rule tactics were used by both local politicians and British officials to foster animosity between various ethnic groups in Trinidad and Tobago. The march, however, went ahead successfully. Another painting in the exhibition, The Gossip Circle, references the manifesto of the Bermudian group, the Blackberry Cadre. The manifesto highlights a desire for community-led infrastructure and resources. The Blackberry Cadre ask, what if the gossip circles suddenly became centres of information for the revolutionary forces? In the painting, I envisage what these desires could have looked like if they'd been fully realised. As gossip is stereotyped as feminine, this painting visualises a feminine associated space where you get your hair done sitting between someone's legs. One of the figures whispers into a braid, the very tip of the hair forming we. Hidden words flow in the braids across the canvas. Another FCO record includes a report on the Congress of African People, which took place in Atlanta, USA in 1970, um, of which some Caribbean activists attended. One workshop focused on black technology, advocating for the implementation of African values to produce a system which could succeed as an anti-imperialist technology. Gossip in the painting is posed as a black technology, a mode of communication free from surveillance. The Old Devonshire Church Fire Bermuda is a 12-part painting series responding to a telegram included in an RD file mentioning an arson attack that destroyed a local church. Although there was no positive proof that the suspected arsonist was connected to the Blackberry Cadre, officials assumed this organisation responsible. British officials viewed the, the Blackberry Cadre as dangerous and were keen to pin any possible charges on them. In a telegram, British official AJ Fairclough suggests, as measures against black resistance in Bermuda, removal of especially obnoxious leaders from circulation by deporting and stop-listing non-Bermudians and special efforts to secure convictions leading to significant terms of imprisonment of offending Bermudians. The old Devonshire church fire Bermuda speaks to what Ronaldo Walcott describes as glimpses of black freedom. What the aforementioned IRD file fails to disclose is that the church was rebuilt several times, including during the 1800s using slave labour. The paintings contextualise the church fire in Bermuda's violent colonial history. 
British officials repeatedly described the BlackBerry cadre as dangerous, decontextualizing their actions from this wider legacy. The 12 paintings combine words and image to question the colonial systems that Bermuda, like most parts of the Caribbean, are built upon and continue to uphold. This work confronts the psychogeography of living in an environment created by the violent subjugation of your ancestors. Walcott's Black Freedom insists upon life being placed at a higher value than property, which would ultimately challenge the continued existence of these monuments to colonial power. In my research, I'm developing a trans methodology to unravel this complex history into visual works. This methodology envisages a future world with embodiment at its centre. This would make those systems of oppressive power referred to by Keeling impossible. My methodology is structured around questions such as, what if Caribbean black power movements had been successful in nurturing radical change for the communities and practices they fostered? What would it look like to go beyond the hold of British colonial ideologies embedded in the Caribbean? To imagine black embodiment requires moving beyond these colonial ideologies, including those about gender and sexuality. To do so, my trans methodology builds upon the vision of Caribbean black power activists fighting for self-determination. Activist Leslie Feinberg reminds us that trans liberation benefits everyone, cis and transgender alike, as it means each individual's right to control their own body. To imagine black power with trans liberation at its centre is a decolonial act. Walker argues that black freedom is not just freedom for black subjects because it would require global reordering, rethinking, remaking, that would mean a reorientation of the planet and all modes of being human on it. The ways that we are able to exist as black people and trans people have been shaped by systems of whiteness. Black freedom would necessitate an embodiment outside of the imagining of a white colonial framework. The Blackberry Cadre articulated an intersectional perspective on how gender and race-based forms of oppression are inextricably linked. In their manifesto, they urged that inherent in black women's experiences are fundamental questions of colonialism, capitalism and oppression. They also claimed that black women suffer oppression not only because they are women, but because they are black. The cadre were considered a serious threat by the British government. One element of this perceived danger was in the potential for the cadre to gain support from the wider black community in Bermuda. However, the aim of this research is not to rewrite history. Rather, this trans methodology imagines what could have been possible for black activists like the cadre if they had been in an environment to flourish in outside of colonial notions of gender. It is also not a stretch to think of this as feasible. In 1970, the same year the manifesto was written, the Black Panthers Party's European Newton wrote an open letter calling for solidarities between the Black Power movement and the women and gay liberation movements. A trans methodology makes space to exist outside of binaries, including a binary and linear reading of history. I'm taking elements from history and posing the following question. What does it mean when these moments, women and queer liberation and black power are brought together? What happens when history is reframed by this context? I'm now working towards the second exhibition, Unattributable Briefs, Act Two, which opens at Orleans House Gallery in Richmond in March 2023. 
The focus of Act Two is the British operations in response to Caribbean black activists, including the use of unattributable propaganda. As I create this body of work, I hope that it can form an alternate archive, confronting the dominant retelling of this history and its inconsistencies. And I'm very happy to say I'm now joined by Rudy in our virtual studio. Welcome, Rudy. How are you? How's your year started? Hi, Edwin. Uh, yeah, good. Thank you. Um, yeah, just a lot going on at the moment with confirmation coming up. Oh, big moment, big moment. And some shows as well, I gather, which we'll maybe get onto a bit later. Um, but there's a lot to get into from your, your very interesting presentation. But firstly, I wonder, can you remember when you first became aware of or interested in the Black Power movement as a whole? Um, hmm. Yeah, I feel like I couldn't really pinpoint like one moment when I became interested in the Black Power movement. But I think that with this research in particular, um, I was in the National Archives back in 2019 and just decided to look for what they might have relating to Black Power and without really knowing what I was looking for or what I might find. And actually through that search, um, I found these records, which at the time I really wasn't aware of kind of the broader context of the records because in 2019, um, the IRD records, the records from the Information Research Department started being released. Um, and so it was kind of just this um, strange synchronicity that I happened to just be looking at that time and just as they were being released. Ah. I see. I didn't realise that. I, I assumed that you had known they had been declassified and then you <laughs> sort them out, not the other way around. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, right. it was really strange. I think I just, I kind of have always considered myself as a bit of an interloper in archives, you know, not having formal archive, archivist training and being an artist and kind of having keywords that were of interest to me. So, you know, Black Power being one of those terms. Um, and then yeah just being like okay what happens when I put this in as a search what comes up and I remember the first record that I found was um it was not an RID record but it was from the high commissioner in Jamaica um who was talking about um kind of the rise in black resistance and kind of uh, black power in Jamaica and how this was influencing um young people in secondary schools and I thought that was really interesting that there were some kind of parallels of what was happening in the UK. And so that was sort of like the initial thread. And then, yeah, finding what was the first 72 records, which included um, a number of the IRD records. Even without really knowing what the content was going to be, I knew on some sort of innate level that these records were really important and that people like in sort of the general public were not aware of their existence and that um, you know, if people knew that they were there, then that could really have a significant impact now. And you argue that the state is an unreliable narrator of its own history, which is an, an interesting phrase. I suppose it didn't take you long to come to that conclusion when you started surveying the records, did it? I mean, no, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's probably what I thought anyway. But I mean, the proof is really there. Um, I feel like there is a very strong narrative around um, independence in um, parts of the Caribbean that, you know, uh, were once part of the British Empire. Um, 
So we have all of these independence days and there's this idea that, you know, once independence was achieved, like that was it. And obviously there are some parts that decided to remain as um, British territories like Bermuda. Um, but I think that this dominant narrative creates this idea of independence that doesn't actually reflect the reality. And so these, yeah, that's kind of the, the that's the story that has been narrated over and over here. And actually um, these records tell, these records tell a bit of a different story um, and show that, you know, even after um, countries like Trinidad and Tobago had achieved independence, actually, um, they were still being influenced by Britain and, um, you know, that Britain was not really willing to just give up that power that they had had for such a long time. Um, and so mm. this idea of the withdrawal process then really, um, you know, has to be critiqued because what does it actually mean? And, and, and to be honest, it goes further than that anyway, because um, when you start to look at the companies that were also um, had some sort of investment in, in these countries, you know, for example, um, companies that are part of the, the bauxite industry in Jamaica that were still extracting minerals. And uh, I mean, what's interesting for me is that you can actually look at this from so many different angles as well, because um, this relates to the environmental crisis, you know, so looking at climate colonialism, there's a thread of this, or lo looking at, for example, Canadian banks in Trinidad. So um, it's very complicated, but I think that it really does show that um, we've been given this singular narrative that, you know, the sort of shaking hands, giving the country over, that's it, bye, see you later. And it's not really been like that. It's been um, a lot more murky. Well, you posed a big question um, in your reading, which is what if Caribbean black power movements had been successful in nurturing radical change? Um, I wonder how long you've been thinking about that particular question and to what extent that drives your research and art practice now? Yeah, I mean, that's a really fundamental question for me because I think about how these moments in history have reverberated out into the current day and how our present lives as people who are part of the Caribbean diaspora have been affected by this. You know, that had activists been successful um, in creating these free societies that didn't actually just kind of replicate um, the structures that pre preceded them, then we might have something completely different, you know. And when you start to think about how many colonial laws still exist in parts of the Caribbean, um, for example, the anti-gay laws, and, you know, then it's like, well, what if all of those structures had been removed? And and actually, you know, I, I mean, I think about it because I think of how my own life and, and those of the, you know, people that I care about around me have been affected by this, that it's rippled out through generations. And also when you, you know, when you are in the Caribbean and you see the poverty that some people are experiencing that has a direct link to colonialism that um, is not necessarily being named, then, yeah, I think that also adds another emphasis as to why these are so important, that actually being able to look at this moment and realise actually that um, countries like Britain and the US and Canada were very successful in dismantling these movements and that there was the potential for something radically different 
um, to happen. And that's what the threat was for them. Yeah, well, talking about that suppression, I suppose, um, there is the idea of, of Black Power being portrayed or downplayed in the record as more of a kind of sanitised cultural trend, like you said, than a movement of real political significance. I mean, do you think that has affected how we think of Black Power today? How do you think Black Power is perceived and understood by the general public? I'm aware that you can't speak for the general public, but yeah, how do you feel it's like being perceived now? Um, so what I was saying about the sort of like neoliberal sanitizing of Black Power is that um, Britain and actually some local governments in the Caribbean, such as in Trinidad and Tobago, um, try to create this separation between a political black power and a kind of cultural black power, which actually is more like black pride. And so um, they were happy to try and say, no, we actually support this version of black power, um, which obviously was not really black power at all. Um, it was just, yeah, this, Black Pride. Um, and I think that that's a sort of like active depoliticizing of Black Power. And I think that that's also important because you can see that mirrored in what is happening at the moment um, around, you know, different kinds of identity politics and being able to say, no, we support this particular identity whilst removing the political element of it. Um, yes. And I think that the truth is, I think that they have been highly successful in kind of demonizing black power movements as this sort of militant extremist um, ideology. At least I remember in, in secondary school learning about black power and, and, you know, the main thing we learned was that they had guns in, you know, the Black Panther Party in the US, they had guns and that um, they were militant and dangerous. And that's the same sort of rhetoric that the government, the British government um, was spreading about black power movements in the Caribbean, that these were militant, dangerous people, that they're not interested in the sort of like um, common good of, of the country. So with um, the propaganda that the British government put out through the IRD in Bermuda, in Trinidad, in many other places, um, that was the the message that they were spreading that um, these are dangerous people and also that they are communists. And that was also another important thread that um, this history actually can't really be separated from the suppression of communism. Um, and so there was always some kind of link in the propaganda that they were making as well, that there would be, you know, they'd be saying they're funded by Cuba um you know they have soviet interests or you know this so there was always that kind of also being um a way to bolster their argument and i think that i would really say up until the sort of black lives matter protests i feel like they had been very successful in painting black power in a certain light which was negative um and i think that with the black lives matter um, movement it's been possible for people to kind of return to like what a radical black politic would look like um, and for me at least it's interesting also to see that a lot of the reactions towards black lives matter movements um, in the contemporary moment mirror the response to black power movements um, in the caribbean 
And so, you know, some of the techniques, um, for example, introducing laws, harsh laws in response to actions. Um, so, for example, you know, bringing in the um, police crime sentencing courts uh, bill act now um, in response to the BLM protests in 2020 and the removal of the Edward Colston statue. Um, so, and that mirrors this, the same kind of thing that was happening there, that there was constant trying uh, to sort of use different elements to su suppress the movement, whether that's yeah, bringing in legislation or writing really damning articles, um, because that's the thing, a lot of this propaganda that was being created by the IRD was being sent out into global media outlets and being published um, as if it's sort of independent thought in these media outlets. And so, yeah, I think that's really changed the way that I now look at the media of today about some of these political movements, that there's, it would be entirely credible that that is not written by the journalist that I think it would be. So, you know, that's kind of thing that's like really changed how I think about um, sort of these systems. Well, you mentioned when you start to pull at this thread, you know, a lot starts to kind of unravel and become apparent. Um, and your research also extends to gender and sexuality in conjunction with black power in the context of the, uh, the fight for self-determination, as you put it. Has this focus on gender and sexuality emerged as your research has progressed or was it kind of embedded from the start? Um, I would say both in some way, because I mean, as a trans person, um, it's embedded in how I see things. Um, and, you know, my kind of background research before this was looking at black feminism. So, um, yeah, in some way it is embedded, um, but it was not something I had initially thought to sort of explore in terms of the methodology. And the reason that it kind of came up was because I noticed that um, for me at least there were some kind of discrepancies around how people research these historical figures so for example the thing about naming you know for people who have changed their names there's a lot there's lots of black people radical black people who would change their names for different reasons but you know as a way of sort of like having yeah some kind of ownership over themselves um, and choosing a new name such as Kwame Ture. Um, and this is also something that a lot of trans people do. And I noticed that often, regardless of that change of name, people researching these people in history were um, using their birth name. And this was really strange to me, you know, because it's like, but this person has decided what their name is. So why are you calling them this thing from you know, decades ago. Um, and so that kind of began as sort of like the kernel of thinking, okay, but um, as a trans person, we call this dead naming, that you've decided to call them by their birth name rather than um, the name that you know they go by. And I don't, for me, that's like, um, it's like a way of, yeah, just disregarding the sort of ownership that, that, that people have over ourselves. Um, yeah and the name that they've chosen for themselves and so yeah that sort of that really began um thinking about what a trans methodology would look like and then um yeah there are you know um writers like Marquis Bay who's writing about black trans feminism which I think is really interesting because it's also got abolition at its center so then yeah thinking about kind of thinking about it from that sort of perspective around um 
that there's this level of like abolition that's also inherent in this and then that opens up a lot more as well thinking about okay what would it look like then for using black power as a starting point in some way to move off um somewhere else that there was a sort of there was another path that could have been taken which kind of goes back to that idea of um what would have been possible if this movement hadn't been suppressed then i'm kind of kind of tracing a sort of line back and thinking where were the sort of um paths that kind of tangented off of this moment yes and as you say that i'm thinking as well about the the environmental crisis that you mentioned earlier in a way and, and the, on the topic of the possibility of doing something different and going down a different path rather than the one that we chose in the end um and like you say that could factor into the research as well and maybe does so it strikes me that it might be a challenge to uh, establish the parameters around your research maybe because there is a lot going on um and i'm sure we all have that problem as researchers to a degree but um do you find that a challenge or i can understand though on the other hand how this is all relevant so you do want to kind of include it all but um yeah is it challenging yeah i mean there's so many interesting threads that i have had to kind of put to bed the research that i have been doing so far have been has been looking at mostly bermuda and trinidad and tobago just because of the ways that they're different um but there are a number of other countries named in these records that are a part of this history so i think you know post phd i hope that there would be um I, I hope that I would have created some kind of template or structure to some degree that could be applied to some of these other records and contexts. Um, and I think just because of my practice as an artist and the way that I work, I would also hope that maybe there would be the potential to collaborate with other people in the future, you know, whether it's um, people in those particular places or people here who are kind of working in a similar way. Um, that this might be a way to kind of open up um, this research and actually stimulate more research. Yeah, well, you mentioned your art practice there. I was going to ask about that. The the process of translating or reimagining the records into art. I mean, where do you start with that? Is there a certain process or template or does it vary with each artwork? Yeah, I mean, I have been I have been creating this method or these methods as I've been going along. So. I initially went to the National Archives, I photographed all of these documents, um, I transcribed some of them. From then I kind of start to figure out the things that are uh, standing out the most to me or you know, seem of the most interest to me and picking what feels like maybe either key moments or um, key statements somehow in some of these documents. But it's been very difficult to narrow it down because um, yeah, I think I've probably looked at over a hundred documents and, you know, some of those documents are hundreds of pages long as well. So it is really hard <laughs> to try and narrow mm. them down. Um, and then from, I mean, at the moment, what I did was, yeah, I just chose what felt like key moments or key documents. And from there, I started to kind of start drawing and thinking about how I could visualize elements of the records and also in, interrogate some of the record in some way um, visually. And so, yeah, you know, working with painting and also working figuratively. Um, in some cases, I've been working with these frames, which, um, yeah, kind of allow more of my voice to come in. But 
I feel like it's a, I mean, it's a big task in a way to try to take this massive history and, and put it into these visual works. So I think for me, there's, it can only be that they, they're kind of snapshots of these, of these moments and that um, I hope that they are visually effective in making people want to know more about this history that um, I have said that in some way I think of them as an alternate archive because also there's the possibility for different voices to exist in the painting that don't exist in the National Archives records um, since the National Archives records are the voice of the state then um, you know there are a lot of voices that are absent there and those voices can be present in my work um, so I also hope at some point that I'll be able to interview some people who are directly related um, to this history as I would love to have their voices present in the work as well um, but I think it's also important to say that I don't feel like this in making this body of work the history is complete and I think that that feels very important that um, I feel like the way that Britain teaches history is this very linear, clean um, narrative. And that is not what I want. I want things that are maybe um, a bit messy or incomplete or show that there was a gap. And for me, that reflects more other historical traditions. So for example, um, you know, coming from cultures that have an oral tradition um, where, you know, people are carrying the story. Maybe the story gets told in a slightly different way by different people. For sure. Well, we'll put a link to your website as well in the episode description so people can see your art for themselves. And also if they want to see it in person, where will you be exhibiting in the coming year? So I am doing a lot this year. Um, mm -hmm. I ha have um, one work in a show at uh, the University of Essex. The exhibition is called Precarious. So that's at Art Exchange at the University of Essex. And that goes on until I think it's the 17th of March. Um, then I have a solo exhibition um, at the Stable House, at Orleans House Gallery in Richmond, um, which opens, I think it opens on the 12th of March, and that goes on until the 1st of May. Um, I'm also going to be in the Liverpool Biennial this year, um, which will open up in June. Great, very exciting. Well, congratulations and all that. And, um, and yeah, so if you want to head out to that, we I'm sure the more information is on your website as well, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And people can follow me on Instagram as well, which is just Rudy Lowe, just my name. Many thanks to Rudy for that very stimulating presentation and discussion. And you can find more information about their work and upcoming exhibitions in the episode description. Look out for another Archives-themed episode coming soon. As always, thank you for listening, and see you next time.